Every time we sing this song, or songs like it, um, regarding surrender, I'm reminded that so much of Christian life that we make complicated, um, it really isn't. The foundational starting point of the Christian life is surrender. I know it's hard to do, and it's incredibly difficult. But the foundational starting point of the Christian life is surrender. And the whole thing that we talk about, we do, is try and get to that place of surrender. And my friends who know this best are people who are part of AA, SA. Because they've come to that place where they recognize, like, I don't have it in me to make this work. Whereas for much of uh, many of us, we're smart enough, we're resourced enough, we're educated enough, and on and on and on. And so the challenge to get to that place of total and utter surrender and weakness, which is the key that unlocks Christian life, that is the journey. And, And we make it more complicated than it is. It's odd to me that Christianity in America looks at surrender as something that's radical. When it should be normal. But as I've been saying for weeks, in the land of safe, comfortable, comfortable cultural Christianity, what's radical, what's normal becomes radical and what's ordinary becomes extraordinary. So what's odd to me is that we live in a country, we're talking about discipleship, we live in a country where following Jesus in the way that he asks us to, all of a sudden becomes something like, whoa. I I don't know about you, but but I don't think Jesus died and rose again to make us safe. I think Jesus died and rose again to make us dangerous for the kingdom of God. I don't think faithfulness is holding down the fort. I think faithfulness is storming the gates of hell. Which means that if you are a Christian that is living your life storming the gates of hell, you will experience spiritual warfare. The enemy will have a bullseye target on your forehead. Christian, pay attention this morning. If your life is comfortable, you're living a life of compromise, what is normal has become radical, what is ordinary become extraordinary. If you are living the safe, comfortable, cultural Christianity, your life will be one of ease because the enemy will leave you alone. You're not a threat. That's right. That's right. But man, if you're living someone, and you know what this is, and we're talking about discipleship, if you get serious about following Jesus, all of a sudden relationships get really hard. Have you noticed that? All of a sudden, temptations that you thought you were okay with get real fierce. Why? Take any follower of Jesus who's storming the gates of hell, empowered by the Spirit, and the enemy says, now you're a threat, and I'm not. Like, I'm looking at, and there's some people that are getting really emotional right now because this is you, and I'm saying this child I've got to encourage you to say, you are exactly where God needs you to be. And for some of us, for whom Christian life is one of ease, comfort, and good Lord. When I was, when I was like in college, there's a Christian radio station here in Chicago called K-Love. I don't know if it's still around. K-Love. Do you, know, do you know what the motto of this Christian radio station was? Safe, 
for the whole family. To me, I know what they're trying to get at, but to me, that's antithetical to the gospel. This following Jesus thing was never meant to be safe and predictable and comfortable. I said this before. We've domesticated this barbaric wild faith. And we've compartmentalized it. This is the reason why if you're 25 and younger, Christians in America, they're checking out of the Christian faith. Because you know this innately, don't you? And I know some of y'all don't like to be like vocal. But you know this, don't you? You know that a comfortable cultural Christianity doesn't make sense. Because there's a part of you that says, if there is this thing called Christianity and a Jesus, then following him ought to be something. And the thing is, Jesus never promises that following him was going to be easy. We don't know where we're going, but one thing we're promised is he will always be what with us. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. And this is what we've been talking about. So I want to just catch us up briefly so we're on the same page. Following Jesus. And you know, I've said this. Half of Christian growth is about learning things we don't know. The other half is unlearning things that we do know. And here's one thing we do need to unlearn. What makes you a Christian is not you pray to prayer at some summer camp. I don't want to, you know, scare somebody like, oh, I prayed that prayer when I was in seventh grade. Pray in a prayer in seventh grade. Say, I accept Jesus into my heart. I invite Jesus. And remember I said, there's no such prayer in the New Testament of accept Jesus and invite Jesus into your heart. What makes you a follower of Jesus is not you pray a prayer. What makes you a follower of Jesus is after you pray that prayer, you actually what? Follow him with your whole life. Following Jesus is what makes you a follower of Jesus. I want to remind us that Jesus is not some puny little savior looking for someone's acceptance. He is sovereign Lord and King, deserving of all of our praise. Disciple is someone who also invites others to follow Jesus, right? It's not just following Jesus on your own. Invite other people to follow Jesus. Disciple and disciple making were never supposed to be separated. Being a follower of Jesus, inviting other people to follow Jesus, is not unusual. And yet we live in a culture where spectator, consumer mentality is rampant in the church. You feel really comfortable with the church that asks for nothing. It costs you nothing. It demands nothing. Why? Why? In the first 300 years, without any buildings, internet, money, programs, pastors... Followers of Jesus turned their world upside down. Why? Because they weren't consumers. Consumers, you can't build a movement on consumers because as soon as it no longer meets your need, they go, I'm out. The church does not exist for you. You are the church and you exist for the world. Can I get an amen? You are the church. The church doesn't exist for you. You are the church. You are the church. You are the church. And you exist for the world. Church membership was never supposed to replace discipleship. I ain't going to go there today. I'm just, I just, okay. Mission drives community, church. What do I mean by that? I think part of the reason why we in the American church have such a hard time building community is because we put community first before mission. That's not going to do it. Look at the book of Acts. People came around and there's intimate community. Why? Because there's a larger mission cost for Christ, making disciples that drove them to that need. And if you're out there doing kingdom work, you're going to need each other. We're going to depend on each other, like, like oxygen. 
But if you try and build community and all we want is community, you can't build genuine community. It is common mission together that builds intimate community. Lastly, a follower of Jesus, someone who follows Jesus, here we go, in community. And we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about this critical component. You know, this is hard to talk about in America because like our Christian, our Christian faith or the way we view spirituality in church is so jacked up. Like, do you realize that fundamental to Scripture's understanding is salvation brings you into a relationship with God, but it also brings you into community with the church at the same time. Let me say that again. Salvation brings you into intimacy with God. You get him as dad. And at the same time, not like later when you want to, not like when you're, at the same time, you get joined to a body of believers called the church. At the same time, you can't divorce the two. And yet we in America think like, no, I got the God thing. And then this old church thing, no, God says, if you, if you want that, I'll take the God thing but not this thing, then you're making up an entirely different religion. Right. Scripture continually says, and I know this is maybe not encouraging to you, you know, the personal sensibilities, but, but Jesus Christ died and rose again for the church, not just for you, right. the people of God. Right. Acts 20. Everybody. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought. He bought the church with his blood, not Peter alone. Carlton, he bought the church. Redemption, salvation is always for the church, the people of God. Why? Because it's the people that witness corporately to the world Christ is, and it's in the people that we learn and practice what Jesus said. It's in the people. You can't be a solo, lone ranger, not connected Christian, and follow Jesus at the same time. You can't. It's impossible. It doesn't exist. And Jesus modeled this, right? You see in New Testament, he calls the 12, and within the 12, there was three. And some people would argue there's a 72. There's a, he constantly calling people in community. Why? Corporately, they witness to the uh, person of Christ, and corporately, they're learning and practicing what it means to follow Jesus. And the disciples learned something, because we're going to spend a couple of weeks in the book of Acts. What do we see them doing? On their own, doing their own thing. What do we see them doing? They're doing life in what? Community. Community. So we're going to be in Acts 2 for a couple of weeks. We're going to kind of just set you up. So, so Jesus gives this impossible command, which is make disciples of all nations. And the disciples are going, how do we do that? And Jesus goes, wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 1, the disciples in the upper room praying, and the Spirit, in one of the most amazing scenes in Scripture, Spirit falls on them like tongues of fire. Church, do you know, I live by a very simple maxim. That is, if we do what they did in the Bible, then God will do what he did in the Bible. Say that again. It's really simple. If we do what they did in the Bible, I believe that God does what he did in the Bible. Do you know what that means? That means when God finds us on our knees, God stretches his powerful right arm. May God find us on our knees so that he would stretch out his powerful right arm and move. And the spirit falls, and the disciples are radically transformed. And we see a picture of their community in Acts 2. Turn your Bibles with me there. Acts 2, chapter 42. 
So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. By the way, who is they? There's 3,000 people who came to know Jesus through Peter's preaching. That's, so the church went from like 120 people to 3,000 overnight. Can you imagine that? They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. Do you know what I love about that? Do you know what I love about that? Being together was not just something that they did. Being together was something that they were. It wasn't just an activity for them. It's a statement about the state of their being. They actually entered into, listen, a whole new mode of existence together. You know what this is like. I was just talking to somebody, you know, we're talking about another couple that's dating. And, and you know, and I asked them, are they together? When I ask, are they together, am I saying, do they just go out to eat dinner together? Do you spend time? What am I saying when I say, are they together? It speaks of what? A much deeper, intimate, powerful reality. Are they together? New community. I have a question. When people talk about our church, they talk about, oh, they're justice-minded, they're diverse. Or do they go, yeah, yeah, new community. They're together. All the time. Not just a thing to do. It's their identity. Verse 44, all the believers were together. And had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anybody who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Can you guys imagine getting together every day? Of course you can't. If we do what they did in the Bible. Y'all said amen to that. <laughs> if we do what they did in the Bible, maybe God will do what he did in the Bible. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Please listen before I talk about some of the big, big picture attributes of community. This short section describes the early church and how it lived. But these aren't just attributes to, attributes to uh, uh, aspire to. Most Preachers and pastors, I've heard sermons, they talk about this and they're like, these are the ways that we need to be and we're going to get to that. But before we get to that, you need to know that this is a picture of what happens when the Holy Spirit is active. Amen. Let me say that again. Before we get to how do we do those things, which we will, this is a picture of what happens when the Holy Spirit moves powerfully. Remember what just happened in Acts 1 and Acts 2. The Holy Spirit has fallen. This is what happens when the power of the Holy Spirit is at work. Which gets me to this. The biblical word for the Spirit in Hebrew is ruach and pneuma in the Greek. They both have the sense of wind and breath. Wind and breath. But when you hear that, it shouldn't just inform our understanding of the spirit. It should give us some implications about spiritual reality. What do I mean? The spirit is someone that you can't see, but has visible effect on somebody. You, let, you and I live in Chicago. We know what it's like on a really windy day to look up in the sky and see nothing 
out of the ordinary. Then you look at the trees and you see what? You see the gusts of that wind on that tree, don't you? Point. If the Holy Spirit is active in your life, it ought to show. If the Holy Spirit is on your life, it ought to show. Don't you think? There ought to be visible, tangible evidence and proof that the Spirit, Jesus even said, you will know them by their what? Fruit. By they, by the way. You'll know them by their fruit, not by their gifts. I just, I just got to say something. I don't know who this is for. I was just talking to a pastor friend of mine. And the conversation came up again about another pastor who fell morally, had multiple affairs. And this guy was incredibly gifted. And it just struck me. I don't know who needs to hear this, but I'm just going to say it. There might be somebody in here, a Christian leader, who needs help. You're not where you need to be. And instead of Seeking help, you're just relying on your gifts and talents to just sort of mask what's going on. I'm just going to say it again. If you are that leader, find help. Walk away from ministry if you have to. Movement of the Holy Spirit so there's ought to be some visible evidence that God is at work. But not just individually, but corporately. What do I mean? The other visible proof of the Spirit at work is what we're going to talk about, which is in, what it entailed and resulted in what? Deep community. Why? You guys, an experience of the gospel and the working of the Holy Spirit doesn't just send you deeper into the heart of God. It sends you deeper into other people. Experience of the gospel and move of the Holy Spirit doesn't just send you deeper into the heart of God. It sends you deeper into the hearts and lives of other people. Being a part of and engaged in deep community is a sign of spiritual life. You don't have to tell a baby to cry. It cries. Why? Because it's alive. You don't have to tell spirit-filled Christians to get together. Why? Because they'll get together as a result of the Spirit at work. Can I get an amen? Amazing thing is when you read the book of Acts, this happens over and over again. Acts 4 is another passage. They're praying. Spirit falls. And the first thing that you find is Luke saying, and they were of one in heart and mind. If the spirit of God is at work here, you know what's one of the evidences? Powerful, supernatural community. I'll just say this as an encouragement. The spirit of God is at work here in our church. Can I get an amen? I have seen in the last year or so kinds of deep community, people going deeper, not just in the heart of God, each other, that I haven't experienced and seen in a while in our church. And it doesn't just encourage me because it's activity. It encourages me because it's a sign that the Holy Spirit is working. But let's not stop here, right? Eh? Let's keep pursuing Jesus. And keep pursuing the spirit. Why? Deeper community. By the way, we had an all-church prayer meeting um, three months ago or so. Have you guys ever noticed 
when a group of followers of Jesus just pray together corporately for like two hours, there's just a supernatural sense of like, hmm. For those of you that were there, can you say amen if this is true for you? It was powerful, which got me thinking, the degree to which we pray together might be the degree to which you experience more unity. I'm just going to leave it at that and then just keep going. All right. What do we learn about community from this text? And again, I'm painting a broad picture, 30,000 for perspective, and we'll dig into each of these points in the upcoming weeks. First, community isn't created, it's discovered. Verse 44, they had everything in common. The word community comes from the word what? Common or shared by all. You know one of the things I love about our church? Yeah, I'll look up here for a second. You know one of the things I love about our church? There are a lot of things I love about our church. One of the things I love about our church is that our church, on a given Sunday or typical week, we have people from all over the spectrum spiritually. We have people here that are, that are non-Christian, people who are saying, I'm just seeking, I'm just you know, learning, I'm not sure about this following Jesus yet. People who are saying, I'm actively seeking, and I'm really, close. people who are active. Like, we have people all over the spectrum. And maybe you're sitting there going, maybe I came on the wrong week, talking about biblical community, what am I doing here? Actually, today's a perfect day you came. Do you know why? Listen, even if you're not a Christian, do you realize that there are a lot of things that you and I have in common? Let me give you a couple examples. You and I are created in the image of God, which means we're endowed with inherent worth and dignity. We have that in common. Can I get an amen? Here's the other thing. Creating the image of God means that you and I yearn to make a difference. We yearn to, for purpose, for significance, for meaning. You and I, whether Christian or not, are asking this question of like, why am I here and does my life matter? All of us are seeking to make a concrete difference in the life that we lead, you know? And when humanity's at its best, we see examples of this. I'll never forget September 11th. 2001, our church was about to launch and we were meeting in small groups. I'll never forget, we're sitting in my apartment, okay? And there's like 15 of us that had met that day and we're glued to the television and we're trying to wrap our minds around what is happening. And for the next few days, we just, we just felt the need to be together, you know? So we met every single day together, this small group of 50 people. And while we were together, we were also glued to the television. And it's etched in my memory forever, church. What's etched in your memory, Peter? I'll never forget complete strangers going up to firefighters with food and water. Complete and total strangers from all different walks of life, literally walking up to strangers, holding them, hugging them, crying with them. Total strangers going up to people they don't even know and saying what? Praying with them. I'll never forget this national and global sense of oneness, global sense that we were all in this together. Here's the thing. It wasn't that on September 12th, community was created. It was what? Discovered. On September 12th, people realized just how much we had in what? In common. Have you thought about this? Do you realize this? You and I live in a country now, in a culture, where we are bombarded every day with the message, you're different. You are not like me. You're not like me politically. 
You're not like me religiously. You're not like me racially. We are constantly bombarded with the message. You are nothing like me. And there's this attitude of us versus them. If you're for me, you're for me. If you're against, against me. And in that culture, it becomes really easy to dehumanize people and demonize people. Look at the culture we live in. Do you know what happens when you and I recognize that we have more in common than differences? Compassion happens. Empathy happens. Oh, good Lord Jesus. I'm not even preaching a Christian sermon right now. I'm just speaking about what fundamentally lies at the root of humanity. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, says this in his book, Compassion Literally. He says, this is a powerful quote, compassion manifests itself in solidarity, the deep consciousness of being part of humanity, the existential awareness of the oneness of the human race, the intimate knowledge that all people, however separated by time and space, are bound together by the same human condition. I just want to take a moment to remind all of us today that the sense of community is a human being issue, not just a Christian issue. That you can experience community with people that you have very little in common with. We're just better when we're in community than when we're alone. We're not healthy when we're alone. We're not whole when we're alone. When we're alone, we don't just lose others. We lose ourselves. We lose sense of who we are. We discover how much we have in common. That used to community. Having said that, Christians, can I take you for a second? To realize that this thing of discovering how much we have in common is fundamental to deep biblical community. Again, one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Four Loves, has this fascinating comment when he talks about friendship. He goes, the reason why our culture doesn't understand friendship is, imagine this, is two people sitting each other to be friends. They're like, do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? And he says, they'll never be friends then. Why? Because true friendship aren't two people who are looking at each other. They're looking at something else that has captured their attention. And it's not, do you love me? But it's, hey, do you love the same truth? There you go. That's right. This is why relationships in our culture are so lame. It's like, do you like me? Do you, do you like the same truth? See, listen, just at a basic level, you know what it's like to experience community because you go rock climbing together. Ooh, community. You cook together. I'm not, by the way, I'm not slamming rock climbing, okay? I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I did that. I, I really don't. I apologize. Don't email me, rock climbers. By the way, I don't even know where you go rock climbing in Chicago. But anyway, that's here, near, here, near there, okay? You know what it's like, right? Or you, you chess club or running club or you serve at grip, mentoring kids when you have a common passion. Now check this out. The deeper, the more compelling, the more beautiful the common passion, the deeper the community. And if you follow Jesus, we have the most beautiful, most compelling, most powerful common passion. And his name is Jesus. Hey. And when you and I look at that truth 
and saying, isn't he beautiful? Isn't he amazing? That results in what? Deep community. This is another reason why also if you're a Christian and you travel in different parts of the world like I have and you go to a culture and you meet somebody, you don't speak their language, they don't speak your language, they come from a totally different culture. And yet when you know that they're passionate about Jesus and the mission of Jesus, it experiences a bond and a connection that you just can't explain. So here's a question for you. What will result in deep community, a new community? What will result in deep community? Please listen. It's not that we're looking to status and looks and money and career. Fashion sense or music and saying, that's what, what draws us together is that we're no longer looking at status, significance, career, achievements as idols. We're no longer bowing at the altar of those things to give us significance. We're bowing at the altar of the king. And bowing at the altar of the king is what will build deep community. Can I get an amen? Listen, you guys. Please, let's get this right. Just because we get together, we're gonna to talk more about this. Just because we spend time together, it doesn't mean it'll result in deep community. What results in deep community is, do you see the same truth? Do you love the same truth? By the way, this is a bonus, bonus. This is the reason why I'm always saying, don't date and be in relationships with people who are, I'm not even going to say Christian because that's, that's, that doesn't mean anything these days. Do not be with somebody who has not bowed their knees to Jesus as Lord. And it's not about legalism. No, it's about do you see the same truth? Do you love the same truth? To which you're going, well, you just, you just narrowed down the list of candidates for me. No, I just... No, no, I didn't. I didn't. You know what I just did? I just deepened your understanding of what marriage is. I'm not done yet. Do you know what this means? This means that the Spirit of God is at work. That means that you ought to look at your life right now and see people from different race, socioeconomic background culture, education level, and be in deep relationships with them. Let me say that again. A test of whether you've experienced the Spirit of God, you live in Chicago, you're part of this church, is that you ought to look at your closest community and you go, you know what binds us together? We see the same truth, not where we came from. Can you say that about people right now? Can you look around at your community and go, if not for Jesus, but because of Jesus, can you look at a group of people that you have nothing in common with otherwise? Community isn't created, discovered. And then, community though, isn't discovered, it's also created. <laughs> you just contradicted yourself. Welcome to my brain. Okay. <laughs> 
is created. Verse 42, they're devoted to fellowship. And every day, says they continue to meet together in the temple courts. One of the marks of the early church was their commitment church and their intentionality about being together. They worked at it. They worked at it. They worked at it. It didn't just happen. They worked at it. Why? Because living in community is the primary context in which discipleship is lived out. Community is where people are practicing what it is that Jesus said. What did Jesus say? John 13, 34, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another by this. Everybody will know you're my disciples if you love one another. The mark of a disciple of Jesus is that you are one anothering, one another. Do you know how many one another's there in the New Testament? Over 100. 59 of those specifically specifically has to do with how we relate to others, like be devoted to one another, honor one another, build up one another, accept one another, admonish one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another, speak the truth and love to one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, submit to one another, bear with one another, teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, stir up one another, show hospitality to one another, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another. I just read 15. Now let me ask you something. How many of those can you do in an hour and a half on a Sunday? How many have you done in the hour and 10, 15 minutes you've been here? See, this is to me is reason why when somebody says, oh, I go to a new community, I go, because when they go, I go to a new community, what they mean is I attend a worship event that happens on a Sunday. Because someone who says, I go to a new community, what you're really wanting to say is, I'm involved in a circle of life relationships with people where I'm doing life on life with. See, this is the danger of why churches that have small groups, because we could actually, church, fool ourselves to thinking that because we get together during the week in a small group for an hour and a half, we're actually doing life when in fact we never take off our masks and get real with each other. See, unless you are able to sit here today and go, you, 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 we are breaking bread together, laughing, crying, supporting each other, that's not the church. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? Couple questions as we move on. How uncomfortable are you willing to be? We're so steeped in individualism and consumerism that this is gonna be uncomfortable, why? Because not being selfish with my time, with my emotions, with my home, with my money will feel uncomfortable. Building relationships patiently and intentionally with people who we have very little in common with feel uncomfortable. Why? Because that takes time and you don't like to wait for anything. Having your tidy little life and well-planned schedules disrupted by somebody who needs you will feel uncomfortable because it will shatter the illusion that you're in control. 
Dying to yourself will feel uncomfortable. But Jesus said, unless a seed dies, it will never what? Live. How uncomfortable are you willing to get? Second question is, are you willing to make space for it? What do I mean? Is being community an optional exercise? Because here's what most of us do. We look at a calendar, we go, I've got all these other priorities, and then if I have time, I'll do the community thing. You know what a biblical community person says? He goes, I'm going to clear all my schedule. Nothing's on the priority. I'm going to make this a priority, and everything else comes around it. Is it an extra thing for you when you have time, or is it at the core of who you are? What about space time, uh, space in terms of time? How do you mentally, emotionally create space so that when you're showing up to being community, you could be fully present, present, and actually give of yourself? What about space literally? How often do you open up your home, your apartment, to host people? What about money? How often do you, as much as you spend on yourself, spend on other people? I mean, all kinds of ways in which are you willing to create space? And we'll talk more about these in the upcoming weeks, practically. Community also gives life. And I'll be real quick about this going into the communion. What do I mean? Community gives life. It says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Everybody say sincere. Sincere. You know what sincere means? Sincere doesn't mean, oh, he's so sincere. Sincere literally means real, transparent, authentic. Why were they glad with sincere hearts? Because when you don't have to pretend and be real with a group of people, there is joy. It is exhausting to be around a group of people where you feel like you have to pretend to be accepted. But when you're around a group of people who are sincere, authentic, real, transparent, something in you comes alive. This is why I say all the time, when you have something that you're struggling with, some deep, dark sin, and you share with somebody despite all your fears, and after you share, that person looks at you and says, I love you and respect you even more now. You come alive. Why? Because you were created to be fully known and fully loved without any fear of rejection. I'm going to talk more about this next week. Can we be a community where because hearts are sincere, authentic, real, that people are glad? Can we be a place where we could come with all of our junk, all of our garbage, all of our issues and have a group of people who says, this is a space where because you are fully known and not hiding, you'll be fully loved. Okay, we'll talk more about this next week. Lastly, community. Community is needed. Verse 46, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Now, we're going to talk more about in the upcoming weeks. The specific context is material need and meeting the material needs of the people. But let me broaden it to need for community. What do I mean? Do you know what's one of the hardest things for me? Say what, Peter? I'll tell you what. I'm glad you asked. Thank you. I'll tell you what. One of the hardest things for me is saying goodbye to people. We live in a transient city. A lot of people who are in their 20s and 30s. I just had an amazing dinner with Jamie and uh, husband uh, Friday night. I just, we just sat there for four hours over a meal, just talked. 
I just, I mean, I love these guys. And every year we're saying goodbye to some amazing, precious people in our church, you know? It's hard. And here's the thing, can I just tell you something? My heart, I get tempted to harden my heart, God. I want to protect it. I don't want to say goodbye. Bro, I'm not going to do that. Why is it? Carlton's like, no, don't do that. I won't do it. I won't do it. And if I do, you call me out. Some of us are in stage of life where we have kids and it gets hard, right? Young parents, it gets hard. We're like, ah, so we're just like, and then though, and then though, and we'll talk more about you, who I'm about to. And then there's some of us though, we've been hurt. We've been disappointed. We've been let down. And we basically, you're sitting, I'm going to specifically talk to you today and a little bit next week. You're sitting here going, I don't need community as a defense mechanism. I don't need it. I want to leave you with the story from the life of Jesus and ask a question as we take communion. It comes from Mark chapter a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Check this out. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of his friends. Since they couldn't get into Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the, paraly the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. To me, the most overlooked thing about this passage, because I've preached it too, is the fact that this man had friends who were committed enough and cared enough to carry him to Jesus. See, there's going to come a time, I don't care who you are, when you will either be unable or unwilling to go to Jesus. And at that place, my question is, who will carry you? Who will carry you? Do you have friends who value you so highly because of the investment that you've made in their lives that they won't leave you behind? If you were paralyzed, if what you needed to do, you couldn't accomplish alone, do you have at least four people right now in your life, at least four people that you can look to and saying, you care about my, enough about me that you'll carry me to Jesus? I've said this for 17 years. Our greatest fear in life should not be that we would fail, but that we will succeed at something that at the end of the day will not matter. The real measure of our lives will not be the degrees, will not be what we acquire, will not be what we achieve, it will not be what we obtain. The real measure of our lives will be the lives we've touched, the lives we've loved and who've loved us, and the lives we've invested in. Because the people that you invest in today are the people who will be invested in you tomorrow. Who will carry you? Who will carry you? See, if you live like you don't need people, you get to prove it later. If you live as if you don't need people, you'll get to prove it later. Are you taking time to invest in the lives of people? Slow down if you have to, child of God, and journey with people. African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, what? Go 
together. It's better to adjust your pace than to walk alone. A life well lived isn't about who walks the fastest, but who has the most people walking with them. Here's the problem. Do you see coming up? Of needing people when you actually need them if you don't have built-in friends. It's like air. I'm not standing up here and going, air, I love air. What will I do without air? When I appreciate air is when I'm 10 feet underwater. You will not appreciate friendships and community until you're emotionally under. But when you're emotionally under, it's too late. Who? will carry you. Who 